We are switching everything all around today, and uh, you'll see why in a little bit. But we're looking at Matthew chapter 15, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 20. It says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the words of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, as we look at this passage that is uh, sort of a difficult passage, Lord, I just pray that you just speak to us the word that you want us to hear, Lord. Conform us more and more into your image. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the one who speaks through me today. Those things that are of you would be remembered and those things that are not would be soon forgotten. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, what does it take to become a professional athlete? Uh, there's probably a lot of things involved. You need to have a lot of dedication hard work, um, have to have some natural abilities. If you're going to be a basketball player, you got to be at least 6'2 or, or taller to be a professional basketball player. So you have to have some physical attributes. Um, you have to have some luck. You have to be in kind of the right circumstance to be able to get drafted and, and have the right opportunities. Uh, but one thing maybe we don't think about when it comes to professional athletes is traditions or superstitions or rituals. Uh, when you look at professional athletes, and I was studying this this week, like it's amazing how many professional athletes have these really kind of strange traditions or rituals. Uh, for example, there's a basketball player named Jason Terry, uh, used to play for Dallas Mavericks, a couple other teams, and uh, he had um, the shorts for every other team in the NBA. And the night before he was going to play a particular team, he would wear the shorts of the team that he was going to play that night when he went to bed. Um, Michael Jordan, never knew this, but Michael Jordan had shorts that were longer than everybody else's, and the reason was he used to wear his North Carolina practice shorts underneath his regular jersey shorts every game that he played in. Uh, Tiger Woods, uh, we know him with the, the iconic red shirt, and he had this, you know, on that last day of a tournament, he would wear his uh, iconic red shirt. Um, Serena Williams would always wear the same pair of socks uh, 
during a tournament. She would, wouldn't change her socks the whole tournament that she was playing in. Um, Wayne Gretzky, greatest hockey player to ever play. And I don't know how he would do this ritual. It would make me throw up. But he would do this before every game. Um, first thing he would do is he would go out on the ice. Well, he would put his uniform on a certain way. He'd go out on the ice and in warm-ups, and he would intentionally shoot wide right, miss the net. And then after that, he would drink a Diet Coke, then a glass of water, then a Gatorade, and then another Diet Coke before he played. Then after that, finally, he put baby powder on the blade of his stick. And finally, our beloved Josh Allen has a tradition of throwing up before every game. Uh, it's not just because he's, like, nervous and he, you know, naturally throws up. Apparently, when he was in college, um, he would just kind of get butterflies in his stomach and kind of get kind of this nauseous feeling. So he started intentionally throwing up before every game so he wouldn't have that nauseous feeling. Pro athletes have some interesting rituals, interesting traditions. Um, apparently, they think that, you know, those traditions kind of give them an edge or give them good luck or whatnot. And, you know, you think about the ancient world and you think about kind of the professional uh, believers, the professional Jews, and they were like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the scribes, teachers of the law. And they also had these traditions, or you might even go as far as saying they were kind of superstitions that they thought gave them an edge over other people. And one of those traditions was hand washing before you would eat. And, of course, this wasn't a hygienic thing. It wasn't because they knew about germs or anything like that. It, it, it wasn't anything like that. Uh, there was this belief that the hands, uh, they said, were ever busy. The hands were touching lots of different things. And so in their mind, there was a good chance that your hands could be defiled by something that was unclean. And then if your hands are defiled by something that's unclean, and then you eat, you could make yourself unclean. And so they had this tradition that they would wash their hands before they ate. This wasn't something that was in the Bible. You won't find this in the Old Testament. The only kind of close thing was there were some priests who were sometimes told to, to wash their hands in a certain way for purity. Um, but generally, this wasn't something that was given to the Old Testament uh, believers as a law or anything like that. This was a tradition that they had. And so being that they're professional Jews... They think that Jesus, if he's a good rabbi, if he knows what he's talking about, of course he's going to teach his disciples to do the same thing. But the disciples of Jesus don't wash their hands before they eat. So the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Why don't they follow the traditions of the elders? And really what they're saying is, Jesus, why don't your disciples follow our rules? And by implication, why don't you follow our rules? I mean, we have these traditions, these ways of doing things. Why don't you teach your disciples to do the same thing? You know, it seems like a really brazen thing to say, but I think sometimes maybe we do the same thing with God. You know, maybe we don't put it in as blunt of terms, but we ask God, God, why are you doing this? Like, why are you allowing these things to happen? And sometimes we get frustrated with God, and sometimes we're thinking to ourselves, in, in essence, God, why aren't you following my rules? Why don't you heal this person that I want to be healed? I see the, the benefit in doing this certain thing, and, 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 and I don't see it happening. Why don't you bring me the financial resources that I need? Why don't you get me out of this dead-end job that I'm in? Why are you putting me in this place? Why are you doing something that's antithetical to what I think is right? And so sometimes I think we ask God, God, why aren't you following my rules? 
Why aren't you doing things that make sense to me? And Jesus responds to them, and notice the right way he responds. He doesn't give them an explanation or discussion of hand washing. He does that with his disciples, uh, some of the other people later. Um, but he doesn't initially give an explanation of hand washing. He doesn't say, oh, well, it's not like, you know, you're not going to be defiled by your hands. You know, your hands are not going to make you unclean. It's what's in the heart. He doesn't give that explanation. He turns the tables on them. And while it were, as they say, Jesus, why don't you follow our rules? He says, why don't you follow God's rules? Why don't you follow God's rules? And why do you make void the, the laws, the, the, the things that God has said by your traditions? Anybody ever seen the show Long Island Audit before on YouTube? Anybody? Nobody? Okay, so that's good. That's okay. So it's a show on YouTube, and somebody told me about it, and um, some people like it, some people don't. I think it's kind of interesting. My wife hates it. Um, but it's a show, and this guy is what they call a First Amendment auditor. And so he'll go into publicly accessible buildings like a town hall or a library, uh, sometimes a post office, uh, sometimes you know, different uh, government buildings. And uh, he'll go through the, the office and he'll take out his cell phone and he'll just take videos of things in the, in, the, in the facility. And he's not like going up to people and taking pictures of them and like following them around or anything. He'll just like take pictures of the scenery, the things on the wall, the literature that's giving, uh, given out. Um, and it's 100% legal to do that. It's protected in the Constitution, Fourth Amendment. Um, and of course, he does, you know, people have different opinions. He's kind of agitating people, so I don't know that, you know, it's the best thing to do, but uh, it's interesting to watch, anyways. But he'll go into these places, he'll take video, uh, uh, you know, of things, and people will just kind of freak out. You know, people, people come out like, you can't take videos, you, you, you gotta delete that off your phone. Sometimes people will like try to grab it out of his hand. Sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll just get crazy and start yelling, screaming, calling the police. Um, and he's not bothering anyone. He's just kind of taking pictures of things around. And uh, there's a conversation that he's had with several people um, that kind of goes like this. I remember one episode um, where the, the, this manager comes out. I don't know if it was a post office or what it was. And he said, you can't film here because we have this sign up that says no filming allowed. And there's another episode where they said, well, we have this city ordinance that says you can't film in public places. And what he explains to them is you can't make a law that supersedes the highest law of the land. You can't make a law that goes against the Constitution. Just because you put a sign up in a public place that's publicly funded doesn't mean that you can nullify something deeper, the Constitution that gives you the right to do that. You know, and, and, and oftentimes, you know, the police will come and they'll say, yeah, I mean, he has the right to do it. I mean, kind of being, you know, kind of a jerk in a sense, being a little agitating, but he has the legal right to do that. I, I think the Pharisees kind of do something similar. They had this, these traditions that they thought superseded the law of God. And one of the traditions they had was something called korban. We don't have really a great parallel today. I think the closest parallel would be um, let's say that your friend came to you and said, can I borrow $1,000 from you? And, and you were to say to them, well, I don't have $1,000 available. I have $1,000 that's in a CD, and I can't touch that for five years. So it's, in a sense, yours, but it's not accessible to you. It's kind of reserved. You can't give it to somebody else unless, you know, you pay a penalty. 
And, and in the same way, people would make these vows to God called korban. And, you know, they would dedicate their resources to God. And there's a lot we don't know about this practice. We don't know exactly how they, it worked. But apparently they would retain the rights to it, perhaps potentially while they were alive. But it was also kind of dedicated to God so nobody else could touch it. And so what they would do is they would say, um, you know, in that day and age, there was no social security. Um, there was no social safety net. There weren't nursing homes like we have today. There weren't any of the resources available in our society. So if someone got older, um, their kids had to provide for them. Um, if, they didn't, if they didn't have kids, the kids didn't provide for them, they might go hungry. They might not have somewhere to stay. Uh, there was just no social safety net like that. Um, and so these, you know, it was a responsibility in honoring your parents to take care of them when they were old, not just to show them respect, to actually provide for them. And so what oftentimes they would do is they would, have, they would say they would vow their resources to God. To, they would korban their resources. And then they would say, sorry, Mom, sorry, Dad, wish I could help you, but I've given all that I have to God, and I can't touch it anymore. I can't give it to you. I can't help you out because I've made this vow to God. And if I would take it away, uh, take it and give it to you, I would be breaking my vow to God, and so I can't help you. And Jesus says, you are nullifying, you are making void the word of God because of your traditions. You are saying you cannot love and honor your parents because you've made this tradition, this loophole, so to speak, to get out of doing what I've called you to do. And we see throughout the scriptures that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, they're really experts in getting out of the, the heart of the law. There's experts at finding loopholes. Uh, remember how there was a conversation with uh, Jesus, the, the, the Pharisees come up to Jesus, and they're asking about um, marriage and divorce. And uh, they would have debates during that time frame, and they would say, like, uh, what is a proper cause for divorce? And some people would argue um, that it was okay for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. And they would try to argue that from the Old Testament. And they, so they would say, like, if your wife overcooked your food, you could divorce her legally. Some people were saying that. And so they would have these arguments about things like that. And, and, and in, in the scriptures, they come to Jesus in another, another passage and they ask him, like, what's your view? Like, what do you think? Like, which side are you on? Like, is, can you divorce your wife for any reason? And Jesus says, in essence, you're missing the point. Like, why are you trying to get around this, you know, make loopholes? If God, and, you know, created this institution of marriage and created this one flesh union, why are you trying to get out of it? Of course, there might be exceptions where divorce might be uh, appropriate and permissible, but why is your first response like, how can I get out of this? What are the loopholes? But that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes did. They were experts in finding loopholes. It's like, I, I want to do what I want, and, but I want God to rubber stamp that. And, and that's really what we see God doing in our culture. Or, uh, that's really what we see culture doing today in a multiple, multitude of ways. It's like we have our own rules and then God must come along with them. Uh, C.S. Lewis, decades ago, once said this. He said, the ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. 
if God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is on the dock. In other words, God must explain himself. God is the one to be judged. And I think I would like to briefly highlight three ways that our culture kind of has unwritten rules that sometimes undermine the heart of the word of God. So there's three kind of unwritten rules that I see in our culture, probably more. Um, But the first is self-love. And I was shocked when I saw banners like these. I think we might have a picture of the one on the screen. Look after yourself and you do you. Uh, another one that I saw that was, it was more surprising, it said, and we don't have a picture of this, it says self-love is the best kind of love. Self-love is the best kind of love. I mean, I was shocked just because of how ludicrous this is. I mean, of course, we're not to hate ourselves. Of course, we're to accept ourselves as we are and, and not, you know, have this, you know, dis- being dis- despising ourselves. But really, this statement, self-love is the best kind of love, it's sort of the definition of narcissism. I mean, in Greek mythology, narcissists fell in love with himself, his own reflection. And I mean, I've never met somebody who was remotely a nice person who was in love with themselves. That like, oh, look at how wonderful I am. Look at how much, uh, you know, how kind I am. Look at how great I am. I mean, that's the definition of narcissism. We weren't wired that way. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5, Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And isn't it crazy how the Bible is so spot on sometimes? I mean, the greatest moments of our lives are not spent looking in a mirror. The greatest moments in our life is when we see something or someone so beautiful that we forget about ourselves. That we're not the focus. And I I think that's the reason sometimes people are so unhappy is because culture is training us to be narcissists. Culture is training us to look inside of ourselves for joy and satisfaction. But the only joy and satisfaction we find is when we look outside of ourselves to God and also to others as we love them. And so many people struggle, I think, for this reason. And uh, I think this is part of the reason as well why don't we don't often treat each other well. It's because it's like, you know, it's all about me. It's even inf- influenced the way we approach church. It's like sometimes people think, well, the church exists to meet my needs, to, uh, you know, kind of help me in my self-actualization, uh, to help me, to encourage me. Like, that's the reason the church exists. And, of course, that's the part of the, ch- you know, the church's existence. But really, we come to church to love God. We come to church to love other people and to be loved by other people, to experience that community. It's not just about us and our needs being met. It's about something that's far bigger than that. And when we look outside ourselves to God and to love other people, we find a joy that we could never find in ourselves. So that's the first kind of unwritten rule that sometimes undermines the word of God in our culture. Uh, The second unwritten rule is that love is all that matters. Now, of course, love is important to us as believers, that we're 
And our mission is to genuinely love God, authentically love people. But in our culture, we have this kind of nebulous concept of love and what love is. And uh, oftentimes, I think in our culture, love is kind of defined as just kind of this this feeling of affection or emotion or sexual energy or however you define it. It's just basically this feeling. And, And the problem is that God is the only one who can really define what love is and show us how love should be expressed. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, um, I, know that, uh, I know that I shouldn't be having sex outside of marriage, but we really love each other. And really, it's a statement that kind of doesn't make a lot of sense because, you know, when you think about sex is a, is, a, is a ratifying act, a covenant ratifying act where you're committing yourself to another person that is meant to go with the, the commitment of marriage. And so when you have sex outside of marriage, you can say, well, we love each other, but really you're communicating we don't really love each other. Like we're interested in one another's bodies, but we're actually not interested in committing to each other because those two things are supposed to go together. So it's a commitment in one sense, but it's not a commitment in the other. I love you to a certain extent, but not in a committed, ultimate sense. It's Pride Month, and you may have seen signs or graphics that say love is love as a sort of justification, celebration of homosexual relationships. And you think about the statement, love is love, and it's really... I mean, it's patently untrue. Love is not love. You know, a love for a spouse is different than a love for a son or daughter, which is different than a love for a friend, love for a brother. So love is not always love. But this concept of love kind of permeates that if there's love involved, that kind of legitimizes what is happening. Um, And the problem is it's kind of a slippery slope In that if love or this feeling of love is the criterion of what is right and what is wrong, then then there really isn't any bounds on sexual morality at all. You know, that if two siblings want to get married, then, I mean, if they love each other, what's the difference? Or, you know, even, you know, heinously, um, tragically, you know, some people in our culture are taking this to the farthest logic extreme to kind of um, allow for pedophilia to become kind of more mainstream. I mean, it's just crazy that these things are happening, but if love or this feeling of love is kind of the criterion of what happens and what is appropriate, then there's really, there's no guardrails on society, that there's no boundaries for what is right and what is wrong. And so we have this idea, love is all that matters. If you feel something, it is right, and it often undermines sexuality, um, and and the truth of the scripture, the sexual expression is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman. And of course, we live in a free country. Of course, we're not the morality police. Everyone has a right to live any way they see fit. But you cannot create a new law that supersedes what God has spoken in his word. So that's the second kind of unwritten rule. And the third is, those who disagree with you are your enemy. We live in a really, really toxic culture. I mean, I remember a couple years ago, there was a prominent Republican that patted a prominent Democrat on the back. And it was a scandal, like... What, what secrets are they hiding, like, that they would be this cordial to each other? I, I remember even a few years before that, um, Ellen DeGeneres, um, prominent, you know, talk show host and um, homosexual, went and had a, went to a baseball game, was hanging out with President George W. Bush Jr. And it was like this big scandal, like, how could they be together? Like, I mean, they don't agree on things. And, and I mean, how sad is it come, is it in our culture that if you're standing side by side with someone who disagrees with you, it's blasphemous. I mean, how sad is that? That we can't 
walk hand in hand with people that we disagree with. That we don't know how to argue, we don't know how to disagree anymore. That we have to be, have this conformity, that we have to agree on things, or that person, you know, who's across from me is my enemy. And you just look at our politics, and, you know, it's not a political thing of Republicans or Democrats. You look at the last two presidents, I don't think anyone would disagree. Both of them have been incredibly divisive. Both of, us, both of them have brought us apart. And we have this kind of toxic culture where, like, if somebody disagrees with us, they're our enemies, we should shun them. And that's where we're going in our culture. But Jesus calls us to something so different. He calls us to love everyone and to love our neighbor love our enemies even Matthew 5 43 to 46 says this you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust for if you love those who love you what reward do you have do not even the tax collectors do the same as Christians, we're to love everyone without discrimination. We're to love everyone, to show respect to everyone, even if we disagree with them, even if we disagree with them on really deep, serious things. We're not to consider them our enemies, but to show them love. And yet our culture tries to get us to believe, to say that people who disagree with us, they're our enemies. We need to shun them. And so those are kind of some ways that our culture's unwritten rules can kind of undermine the word of God. And this can even influence, like, how we participate in the church, you know. And, and it can be kind of simple, mundane things. You know, we think about the way that we do church. And um, we have kind of a low church structure in that, um, you know, you go to a Lutheran church or a Catholic church, and they have a very well-defined liturgy of how they do things and readings and different things like that, which is not right or wrong if, you know, if they're preaching the gospel. But we don't have that. We're kind of you know, a low church kind of style. But we have kind of ways of doing things. You know, we usually do like two songs, announcements, you know, one or two more songs, a message, you know, then maybe a song afterwards. And um, it's not right or wrong, but it's a tradition. And so we need to be careful that our traditions don't undermine our desire and, and our intention to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the reason that we've done the, the, the service a little bit differently today is just kind of to show that, like, it's okay if we do things differently. If our intention is to love God and to love our neighbor, it might look different based upon the context. And the most important thing is that we're allowing the Spirit of God to lead us. And the same thing is true is, like, when, we, when it comes to our outreach events and what we do to reach out to our community, just because we've done it in the past, just because it's a tradition doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. That we need to be open to the Spirit of God, open to His Word, open to people speaking into our lives to maybe even do something differently if God should lead us. And again, that's not to say that our traditions are wrong. It's just a way of doing things, and we just can't allow our traditions to dictate everything that we do. So that's kind of ways that it affects us as a church. Um, but there's also ways that it can affect our personal lives. Uh, sometimes in our personal lives, we have traditions of morality. Um, that is, there's some things in Scripture that are 100% clear, that are, you know, applicable to all of us. Like, you know, to love our neighbor. You know, there's nobody who can say, well, you know, that doesn't apply to me. I mean, there's some things that are applicable to everyone. 
There's other issues where they're kind of gray areas or issues that maybe people have convictions on them uh, that may differ from other Christians. And uh, one of them is, just as an example, is uh, drinking alcohol. There's some believers who believe that it's perfectly fine to have alcohol in moderation um, and enjoy alcohol. Uh, others believe that it's not something that a Christian can do. And, you know, it's a matter of conscience. It's not something that God says, you know, oh, you shall not drink alcohol. Uh, but it's something that believers have come to different conclusions on. And, and that's okay. It's okay that, that, that we come to different conclusions. And those become kind of our traditions of, mora of morality. The problem is when we try to impose them on other people. So the person who doesn't drink alcohol might think to themselves, well, I'm holier than that person who does drink alcohol. Like I'm more, I, I'm, I've figured it out. I'm at a, a further place in my spirituality because I've chosen not to drink alcohol. And the person who does drink alcohol might think, well, I'm more enlightened than that other person who doesn't drink alcohol. Like I, I know my freedom in Christ and, and, and I understand the scripture more that I can partake of alcohol and this other person can't. And sometimes we can take our traditions of morality and use them to condemn someone else who holds a different belief than us. And in essence, undermine the word of God. And so we need to be careful of that, that our traditions of morality, when it's something that's not, you know, 100% clear in the scripture, that our convictions or our traditions don't undermine God's word and cause us to look down on our neighbor. There's also traditions of time. How do we, how do we handle our time? You know, maybe we go home and we spend a few hours watching TV or uh, spend several hours on TikTok or Instagram. Um, and I'm not suggesting that these things are wrong necessarily. I'm just trying to get us to think about, like, what are our traditions? What are our habits? And are those habits trying, you know, leading us to the goal of loving God and loving people? Uh, we can have tr traditions of money. You know, maybe we go to, you know, Tim Hortons every day before work or, you know, we like to shop on uh, Amazon or whatnot. And, you know, again, not wrong things, but are, are traditions of money helping us love God and love people or are they hurting us? Um, there's traditions for handling relationships, you know, maybe how we handle conflict or uh, maybe, you know, in our marriage relationship, we've gotten into a place where we're, we're no longer seeking our spouse. We're no longer putting them first. We're just kind of coasting through that relationship. And so we need to make sure just that our traditions, our, our habits don't influence and, and change what God has said and, and, and cause us not to love our neighbor uh, or spouse. Maybe we have traditions with our kids. Maybe we have really good traditions of praying with them, serving others with them. Or maybe we have some bad traditions. Um, but we all have traditions in our life. And traditions are not good or bad. You know, they can be either one. Uh, but I think it's important that we recognize our traditions. And uh, sometimes maybe we need somebody else in, in our life to kind of speak into our life and, and show us our traditions. You know, maybe we don't realize the way that certain things are affecting us. You know, I know a lot of times people who have addictions, you know, someone who you know, could be an alcoholic and, you know, they say like, well, I've got it all under control or, you know, whatever the case may be. Oftentimes we don't see what's happening in our hearts. And so sometimes we need somebody else to speak into our life, maybe somebody who knows us well, and we can ask them, like, is there anything in my life that you see that's really leading me away from Christ? Is there any habit or tradition in my life that may be bothersome? And then when we see though, we, those, we need to recognize them, and then maybe we replace them with different traditions, uh, traditions that would help us in our goal of, of honoring God. 
And really, in, in Jesus' mind, the tradition is not important. You know, whether they, the Pharisees can wash their hands if they want to wash their hands. It doesn't matter about hand washing or, hand, or not hand washing. It doesn't matter about if you drink alcohol or don't drink alcohol, if you go to Tim Hortons every day or if you don't go to Tim Hortons every day, if you watch TV or don't watch TV. It's all about the heart, and that's what Jesus says. What one eats, what it, whether you wash your hands or not, it's go, not going to defile your heart. It's all what comes out of the heart. So that's what Jesus is most important. And it's do, our, do we have hearts that long to follow God and to love people? And do our traditions further that goal? Early in his career, Matt Redman, uh, worship leader from Great Britain, was in this worship band. I'm not even sure if he was the, the worship leader at that point, but he was in this worship band. And uh, him and his bandmates were really proud uh, of what they were doing, really proud of the music that they were putting out. But it had become kind of a tradition that they were, it had become kind of a performance. And uh, their pastor came and confronted with them with this and said, uh, basically, I, I know you're really proud of what you're doing and you're, you know, producing some really great music, but you're not worshiping. The band was offended. Everybody on the, the worship team quit, except for Matt Redman himself. Shortly afterwards, he wrote his most famous song, The Heart of Worship, which includes these words, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, Jesus. My prayer is that it would be all about him. And as we close today, may our traditions be tools rather than hindrances to love and serve God more deeply. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. Lord, our desire is to honor you in all things. Our desire is to love you and to love those around us. Lord, take away anything that would hinder us from that goal. As a church, Lord, give us wisdom. Speak through your spirit so that everything that we do would be honoring to you. That we wouldn't just do things because the way we have always done them, that we would do things with the clear intention to love you and to love those around us. In our personal life, Lord, please reveal to us any habits that we have, any traditions that maybe, maybe are, they aren't even wrong, but they're leading us away from you. And help us to replace those things with traditions that are honoring to you, that bring us closer to your throne. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.